Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition. We've got a very special show for you today. On today's show, we're going to be replaying a conversation that I had with Adam Taggart on the Peak Prosperity YouTube channel. Peak Prosperity is an organization run by my good friends, Dr. Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart. And the Peak Prosperity movement has over a million followers. They're dedicated to helping people build resilience into their lives. Listen to my conversation with Adam Taggart. Hello, and welcome to Peak Prosperity. I'm Peak Prosperity co-founder Adam Taggart. And as usual, we are here to make sense of the markets and of money in general. This week, we want to talk about real estate. You know, when the topic of investing comes up, most people immediately think of the financial markets, right? Stocks, bonds, et cetera. But interestingly, the number one most preferred investment by Americans is real estate, and it's for compelling reasons. Real estate can produce inflation-adjusting income along with equity appreciation over time, while also enjoying tax advantages that stocks and bonds don't benefit from, which is why we're very fortunate today to be joined by Victor Menashe. Victor is a seasoned real estate investor who purchases and develops properties throughout the US and Canada. In addition to his focus on producing returns for his investors, Victor is an educator who's passionate about helping regular folks understand how they can use the advantages of real estate to generate inflation-adjusting income streams. Uh, Victor, our paths tend to cross uh, at least once or twice every year. COVID's kind of thrown a monkey wrench into that, but it's really nice to be able to connect with you live here, at least virtually. Uh, Great to see you again, and thank you so much for coming on the program. It's great to be here again. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Well, look, let's just jump right in here. Can you just give our viewers a quick background on the benefits of investing in real estate and the role that it can play in a diversified portfolio? Absolutely. Let me start by making a bit of a distinction between the different forms of real estate. I want to separate what happens in the world of residential real estate versus the world of commercial real estate. There's so many different asset classes. We often hear We see things in the press about the risk of investing in real estate and the long shadow and the memory of the post 2008 is probably still still fresh in people's minds. So we wanna make a bit of a distinction about what happens in the world of residential versus commercial. And if you think today we're in the COVID environment, there's certain asset classes, even in commercial that are suffering. We think about hospitality, we think about office, we think about retail, All of those asset classes are a little bit discretionary, and therefore they're suffering. So when we tend to talk about real estate, our focus is on those those classes of real estate that are essential, which means housing. People still need a place to live, but we're talking about commercial real estate, not residential, because the way commercial real estate gets valued is different than residential real estate. Residential real estate gets valued because maybe... Your spouse likes the way this place looks and they like the view and they're willing to pay more for that. Commercial real estate doesn't get valued that that way. It gets valued as a financial asset, the same way that you would value a treasury bill or a stock or a bond. It's based on multiples of net income and it's not speculation. So it's a, it's a very different way of looking at an investment. You got to look at these as you would look at any paper investment, except it happens to be a real asset. Great. Thanks for that. And you um, you very rightly emphasized something that our friends, uh, Robert Helms and Russell Gray of the real estate guys, uh, they say that, you know, don't think of real estate as an asset class. 
think of it as many different types of asset classes because they all have their strengths, weaknesses. They perform differently in different market environments. Um, all right, so um, you know you, you tend to invest, you know, more in commercial real estate, um, and you mentioned how commercial real estate is, is at least in theory, supposed to be valued on. Um, as the discounted flow of the income streams that it produces. Um, you gave a little bit of nod to COVID, but um, you know, right now we have an awful lot more people and more businesses that cannot afford the rents that they were paying before COVID comes, came along. So um, you know, what's happening in the industry right now? Like which, how badly is it getting hit and, and which parts of the industry seem to be doing better and which parts of the industry seem to be doing worse? The two brightest lights in the industry right now, again, I'm speaking commercial, are industrial real estate, warehouses, refrigerated warehouses, anything like that uh, are under, you know, experiencing tremendous demand, strong rent growth. Um, you see fulfillment centers popping up all over the country. You see e-commerce looking for more space to replace the retail space that is that is shrinking. Uh, so that's certainly one asset class. It's not our focus. The second area that I would say is doing really well is multifamily. And and that falls into two classes. First would be, you know, the typical garden style multifamily apartment complexes that you see all over the country. But there's an increasing asset class as well, which are almost like executive townhouses, but purpose built for rentals. People like to live in a single family home. They may not necessarily afford a single family home, but they like something that lives like a house. So there are a lot of purpose-built communities coming together uh, specifically as rental assets. Rather than just going out and buying a bunch of single family homes and rent and renting those, these are purpose-built communities. So we like those in general. And, and I would say those are the two areas that we would focus on in today's environment as doing the best. We talked, you talked a little bit about COVID, Rent collections in residential real estate are quite high. They're well into the 90s. It's a couple of percentage points off what it was compared with the pre-pandemic numbers, but we're not seeing the cataclysmic predictions that were made early in COVID about you know people not paying rent. That, that We've not experienced that at all. And I'm curious, how much of that do you think might be tied to the um, you know, fiscal stimulus that has been you know, increasing people's unemployment benefits and sending checks in the mail and stuff like that. Um, is that allowing people to kind of continue to pay the, the market, the previous market value uh, rents? And if so, is there a concern that you might start seeing defaults once those checks end? So it's a very good question. Uh, certainly the amount of stimulus that's coming into the marketplace has created a little bit of an artificial environment. The moratorium on evictions has created an artificial environment as well. And having said that, I you know, we're, all the noises out of Washington right now is they're not going to let the population flounder. Certainly the majority of the hardship that's being experienced in the COVID environment are in that tenant class. Uh, if you look at who's lost their jobs, it's people that are in hospitality, in restaurants, uh, in retail, uh, hourly paid workers, factory workers. It's not um, it's not the hedge fund managers. They're, they're, they're gainfully employed. You know? So it's, it's really the folks that are kind of at the bottom of the economic ladder that have suffered the most. They've suffered disproportionately. And yet, we're still seeing very strong collections in rent. So the only conclusion we can really draw is that that stimulus is working. Okay, great. And uh, I'll get into in just a few minutes sort of what you think 
the key factors are to consider when investing in a certain property or property type. Um, just to give an example, um, that you know you can invest in multifamily, but it, then it deter- you, know, you got to determine where along the spectrum of multifamily do you want to play. And what we often hear from people is is it's it's smart to play in, in sort of moderate properties or middle tier properties because in a in a um, economic boom, you get people at the lower ends who are competing to get into the property as they become, you know, more wealthy. And then in a recession, you have people uh, from the from the higher end competing to come down in as they're downsizing, right? So that's sort of one example where if you have a good property, it can actually do well in different market cycles. Um, but before we get there, just a quick question for you. Um, for people that have not invested in real estate yet, but are sort of intrigued by the idea of it. Can you just sort of give a minute on the, the the benefits of doing so as an investor versus investing in stocks and bonds? You know, sort of why why, why invest in real estate as a, as a regular investor? Well, certainly if anyone is listening to this, chances are that they've listened to the crash course or watched the crash course and understand the impact that inflation has uh, over the long term. So just give you a very simple example. Imagine for a moment that you bought a property that was, let's say, a million dollars, and you put down, let's say, the minimum 20%. So you put down $200,000 and you borrowed 800000 from the bank. So you've got that typical 80-20 loan-to-value, loan-to-cost ratio. And let's say that inflation's running a little bit higher than the government is projecting. Let's say inflation, just to keep the math simple, is running at 10%. So a year from now, that property, instead of being priced at a million dollars, is priced at a million one. I don't want to say it's worth a million one, because that gets us down a whole rabbit hole of philosophy, but it's priced at a million one. Now, even if you'd made almost no principal pay down in that first year, you still roughly have $800,000 in debt, but your equity has grown from 200000 to 300000 Now, the mathematicians in the crowd are probably saying, well, wait a minute, Victor, that 300000 is not quite worth 300000 in last year's dollars. So it's worth now, let's say, 10% less than that. It's worth two seventy. You've still made very, very good return on that equity investment just through that extra leverage. And that is the game. You know, we talk about playing the game. And the question is, do you know the rules of the game? Most of the people are playing the game. They're out there on the field. They've got the ball in their hands. And this other team comes out except they got helmets on and they've got padding and they, you know, you think you're out there playing rugby, but it's actually playing, you're playing football and you just don't know it. So you're not playing by the rules that the rest of the folks are playing by and you're going to get clobbered because you don't know the rules. And if you thought for a second that the rule, the game was how do you win in an inflationary environment, you play the game very differently. And, and that's, that's really the benefit that real estate gives you, especially with a modest amount of leverage, all of the benefit goes to the equity holder and the depreciating asset is the loan. The depreciating asset is your savings in the bank account. What gets wiped out in inflation? People on fixed income, their buying power gets wiped out. Debt gets wiped out and savings get wiped out. So you want to play the game so that you're on the on the winning side of that trade. That's it. Nothing more complicated. That's that's a great, I think, simplistic way to say it, uh, Victor. So that, that is a great job. And and just to you know emphasize your point there. So we've had a number of very august uh, economic and financial thinkers on this program over the past couple of months 
who have been saying that, uh, you know, by their calculus, the odds of uh, inflation have gone up pretty dramatically uh, over the past year. No big surprise. Um, I'm forgetting the exact number, but uh, I, I just saw the stat that it was it was literally something I think nearing or in excess of twenty trillion dollars that has been in stimulus that's been ushered uh, throughout the world over the past year. Uh, if you add up all the different uh, monetary and fiscal stimulus programs across all the major countries, I mean, it's just a, a massive wall of of liquidity that's going into the market, and more dollars means more inflation. That actually is the textbook definition of inflation: is an increase in the money supply. Right, but well, if you look at it even from a consumer price index perspective, I mean, all of the rhetoric around, for example, increasing the minimum wage. Absolutely, people are struggling and getting the minimum wage up is going to benefit some people temporarily. But if someone is making $15 an hour right now and the minimum wage is now 15, guess what? That person's going to feel like they've moved backwards. So they're going to be going to their boss saying, you know what? I need 20 bucks an hour now. And it's going to trickle through the economy. It's going to raise prices locally for anything that's manufactured locally. It's going to give advantage to those products that are imported, unless, of course, the dollar falls, which it probably will. But at the end of the day, that's all inflationary. Uh, it, it is. And one thing that many people don't understand is, is programs that give money directly to households, um, they tend to be much more inflationary than the other types of stimulus because that money gets spent immediately and increases the velocity of money in the system, which drives prices up. And I, I don't want to get too caught around that, but it's just an important thing to keep in mind. So, you know, as you said, Victor, um, real estate is is great because you have the, the, the leverage that debt gives you to be able to, um, you know, make the return that you calculated, right? Your, your, your example there was almost a 50% return in one year. And hey, that's not guaranteed, but you give an example of how that can happen, you know, with the leverage of real estate. Um, you talked about the, um, the income stream, you know, that you get from real estate. And again, we call those inflation adjusting income streams. So like you said, you know, a bond, you buy a bond, you lock in what you're going to get from that bond as an income stream, and that gets depreciated in purchasing power as inflation rises. But if you're charging rents, rents adjust with inflation, right? And so, you know, as, as somebody who's invested in a real estate, rental property, you know, you're able to, you know, basically move your prices up along with inflation. So you're sort of protecting that purchasing power. And again, another important thing about real estate is that um, uh, the, that income stream over time, you know, you can use to pay down the, the mortgage, pay down the debt you have on the property. But again, in a highly inflationary environment, Inflation's doing a good job of reducing the cost of that debt to you along the way. So it, it, I just want to make folks to really understand that there are multiple advantages to investing in real estate that you don't necessarily get in the financial markets. The last thing I want to ask you about on this topic is real estate does enjoy certain tax benefits. Can you just talk about one or two of them uh, so that people have a general sense of how real estate can differ from a paper asset like a stock? Absolutely. So when you get income, net income from the property, it comes out in the form of a distribution. And you typically will also charge as an expense against the property depreciation. So that depreciation will vary from one year to the next. If you do something called cost segregation, which means that you're going to look at the property in its constituent parts, the roof is going to depreciate at a different rate than the refrigerator is going to depreciate at a different rate from your carpeting and so on. You can accelerate some of that depreciation. This is work that is done by the accounting team that's supporting the real estate investment business. What that does is it often creates a situation where when you add that depreciation expense that flows through alongside the income, 
you can often zero out that quote-unquote profit so that a lot of that cash flow comes out almost tax-free. That's one of the real benefits of real estate. It's one of those things that's not we don't believe is going to be challenged uh, with the new Biden administration. That's one of the principles of uh, of investing in real estate that's been around since the beginning of time. There are things that uh, came into play under the 2017 Trump tax law that might disappear, like bonus depreciation, which really accelerated it into one year. Uh, that may disappear. But the basic concept of depreciation that's been around for a long time is uh, is still a play, and it allows you to pull a lot of that income out, that cash flow out, almost tax free on an annual basis. Great, and and real real quickly for folks, um, when uh, Victor said it sort of zeroes out the income, um, you're actually still getting the income, you're getting the cash. It's an accounting adjustment, and so um, the depreciation is a paper expense. Basically, you're taking that year, so you're still getting the cash. But from a, a, you know, a taxation standpoint, the government's subtracting the depre- depreciation from your taxable income. And as you know, Victor said, it might say, oh, it looks like you actually made $0 this year, even though you got cash in the door. Exactly. Um, all right. Exactly. So, Victor, let's switch on quickly to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to give people a crash course in, uh, you know, the ins and outs of real estate investing here because we just don't have the time and you're doing great so far. But if you could, uh, you mentioned that, you know, real, uh, residential real estate I'm sorry, uh, multifamily real estate is, uh, you know, still an attractive uh, asset class right now, given the current market dynamics. Um, Can you just give folks a general sense of when you look at a property, whether it's when you're going to buy or when you're going to build, what are the, you know, kind of success factors that you most look for to determine whether it's going to be a good investment? So we, let me put it from the perspective of someone evaluating an opportunity, not just something that we would evaluate, but let's say someone puts a an executive summary in front of you, this is what you should look at. You should look at three things. Number one, you should be looking at the submarket. And when I say that, I mean that real estate is hyper-local. If you pick any city, let's say Austin, Texas, the west side and the east side are dramatically different. The north and the south are dramatically different. You want to really be looking at it almost by neighborhood by neighborhood basis so that you understand what's happening in that neighborhood in terms of rents and all of the rest. So you want to look at that submarket. What you're looking for is influx of population, influx of jobs. I don't ever, ever, ever want to be in a shrinking market. I will not, and this is just Victor's philosophy, I will not invest in Detroit. Nothing wrong with Detroit, but their population has cut in half over the last 30, 40 years. There's a reason you can buy houses for under $30,000. It's because there's more supply than demand. You want that supply-demand imbalance where there's more demand than supply and you want to see that imbalance persist for a good long time. So I want that kind of upward pressure uh, on prices. I want to see that upward pressure on rent. And I want to see that influx of population. So that's paramount, number one. Number two, you want to look at who the operator is. What's their track record? You don't want to be necessarily investing with the two guys in a pickup truck class of operator, you want to be looking at the folks that are established, that are really investment-grade operators that have a strong track record. And then number three, you want to look at the specifics of the deal, which means you want to be looking at the multiples and are they conservatively underwritten compared to the rest of the marketplace. So you actually want to look at that market study that comes along with the executive summary. I know it's a lot of pages, but you want to look at it and see that it's been underwritten conservatively no different than you would for a stock or a bond. You wouldn't want to buy a stock that's trading at 50 times earnings, 
all other things being equal if the rest of the market is trading at 15 times earnings. You don't want to overpay for something. So I would look at those three things. Okay, great. And, and you're really, um, you're, you're talking about an approach that I was just about to ask you about, which is um, uh, syndication or basically buying into a deal. So, you know, people can invest in real estate directly if they want to. You can, you can buy a building and become a landlord, right? And go out and find tenants for it and do all the property management and all that stuff. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes with that. That's not for everybody. And it can be costly to come up the learning curve there. Um, also, you're very limited by how much capital you have to invest. In other words, if you've got, uh, you know, $20,000, you know, you're not going to be, um, you know, buying a hospital and renting it out to a, a hospital management group, right? Um, but with uh, syndication, there are people out there like Victor and, and other people in his, his industry who... Um, you know, they amass the capital from investors, they put together an offering and they say, we're going to buy this building, uh, this apartment building, you know, it might have, uh, you know, hundreds of, of rooms in it, um, or we're going to uh, buy or build this, you know, uh, commercial property or hospital, whatever it is, uh, or sometimes you even develop them on your own too. Um, and what that does is it gives people the ability to um, basically ride the coattails of an expert real estate investor, right? So if you don't have a lot of experience, you can get in a deal that's being run by somebody with a lot of experience. You can get into deals, again, that you couldn't otherwise get in on your own because the properties are much, just much bigger properties, much more expensive. Um, and then third, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to learn the ropes the hard way by getting calls at two in the morning because the plumbing broke and whatnot. Um, so uh, I, I, maybe there's not more, much more to say about syndicates than what I just rattled off there. But if you've got anything to say, please do, because I think a lot of people watching here may not actually know that that model exists and may find that more sort of, you, it doesn't have to be entirely passive, but that's sort of much more passive way of investing in real estate, attractive or at least attractive as a first step. I would make the distinction. There's a lot of people out there watching uh, TV shows of flipping houses and all of that sort of thing. And it, quite frankly, that's not investing. That's that's a job. You know, money comes in one of three ways. It comes either as earned income, as residual income, or capital gains. Or maybe as the fourth one might be a government check. But, uh, you know, it's either earned income, residual income, or capital gains. One of those three. Flipping houses is not real estate investing. That's manufacturing. Your inventory is the all the materials, including the house that you just bought, that you're going to go and improve. That's a manufacturing business. And so it's a very active business. If you go and spend three months on the beach, everything comes to a stop. That That's an active business. And even owning and managing an apartment complex, if you have a 250-unit apartment complex, that's an active business too. It's not a passive business. You can invest passively in that active business and you can get residual income from that investment. At that point, it's an investment. Anything less than that, if you are actively involved, well, that's just another job by a different definition. So you want to make that distinction. If you think about where most of the wealth in the world has been created, it's been through some combination of residual income and capital gains. It's almost never been through that earned income approach. All right. Very well said. So, um, all right. Well, as you wrap up here, um, for at least this first conversation, uh, Victor, you know, it's such a big topic. I'd love to have you on again to dig a little bit more deeply into it over time. Um, but, uh, you know, real estate is, it's got a lot of advantages that we talked about. Um, it, it is much less liquid than, you know, the common stock or bond or whatnot, Correct. right? You know, you can't, you can't just, 
you know, and also too, it generally requires a larger capital commitment, right? You can't put $5 into a property uh, and you can't sell it, you know, in the next minute if you decide you want to, right? Um, so uh, if there's anything about those, you know, sort of the, the you know, eyes wide open, you know, things you'd want folks who are considering investing in real estate to know, please state them. But, but in answering that question, um, I would assume, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but after I'm done talking with you, I'm going to talk with the, the lead partners from New Harbor Financial who are on this program every week, who are financial advisors. I would imagine that you would say, you know, before making a real estate investment, especially if you're relatively new to it, you know, you should, you should work with the, you know, under the counsel of your financial advisor to make sure that you're answering, you know, these important questions correctly. You know, how much should I put in? Um, how should I fund it? Should it be just straight cash? Could it come out of a retirement account? That type of stuff. So um, I would assume that you would say, look, you know, it's a big decision. Take it into account with your full financial situation and listen to your financial advisor. But if you disagree, let me know. Uh, no, I think that's right. You know, the I, I know uh, Mike and John from New Harbor, and they're not like your typical financial advisors. A lot of them are, I'll say, glorified salespeople. If they don't collect a commission on what they're selling you, they're not going to recommend it. So there's a lot of financial advisors out there that are basically just selling product that they've been told to sell. I don't think New Harbor are like that. They're really fiduciaries and looking out for investors' best interest first and foremost. So first thing is make sure that you're working with the right kind of financial advisor, not just someone who's a glorified salesperson. Because they're not if they're not going to make any money off of recommending a real estate investment, they're not going to recommend it. It's that simple. I think it's a part of your investment strategy, part of your investment portfolio. I wouldn't necessarily make it everything, but it's a fantastic way of getting a an inflation-adjusted, risk-adjusted return on your money for the long term. You're right. It is not as liquid as, uh, as say, a stock that you can sell in the next three minutes. But it's if your aim is long-term appreciation, if it's long-term wealth protection, uh, in my view, this is what I do day in, day out. I can't think of anything better. All right. Well, thanks so much, Victor. Uh, I'm going to give uh, one shameless plug for uh, Peak Prosperity's um, uh, six-episode, 12-hour-long uh, webinar series in real estate investing, how to invest in real estate for safety and profit, which uh, Russell Gray and Robert Helms, who I mentioned earlier, who are, are really good uh, colleagues of, of Victor's, um, help put together for us. But, you know, we've, we've just scratched the surface of the surface of the surface of the iceberg in this discussion. And if you want to delve more deeply, uh, the first two hours of that uh, video webinar series are completely free to watch. So I'll put the URL up here. And if you're interested, go watch that first episode. And uh, if you like what you see, keep digging in there. Um, now, Victor, um, thank you so much for sharing so much of your time. And, and I think you did a phenomenal job of taking what can be, you know, somewhat of a foreign, complicated topic to people and making it really understandable. So if people have been inspired, um, if they want to learn more, if they want to follow you and your work, uh, maybe learn about some of the properties that you and your firm uh, have coming up in the pipeline, where should they go? Well, they can connect with me directly at my website at victorjm.com, or if they just want to learn more over a period of time, I'm the host of the Real Estate Espresso podcast. It's like the Italian coffee. That's a daily show seven days a week, and uh, it's a short-form show, five minutes, just me on the weekdays, and we have some amazing guests on the weekends, including yourself. You've been a past guest a couple of times, Adam, uh, so the Real Estate Espresso podcast would love to connect with you that way as well. 
Great. Um, and highly recommend if you're kind of interested in, in, in this topic and want to learn more about it, beginning to listen to that podcast is a great way to get onboarded very quickly. Um, Victor's a phenomenal host and uh, very gracious, as I'm sure you've already realized by listening to him. Uh, Victor, thanks so much. Uh, we'll let you go here and get back to your important work. But again, thanks so much for the time. And I look forward to having you back on later in 2021. Thank you so much, Adam. All right. John and Mike, another week, another phenomenal guest. Wow, I love speaking with Adam. He's been a guest a few times on this podcast, as has his partner, Dr. Chris Martinson. Chris holds a PhD in pathology from Duke University, and he was one of the very first people to sound the alarm about COVID-19 back in January of last year. He's been consistently weeks or months ahead in his reporting compared with the information coming out of government agencies. Adam, similarly, has been active in seeking out analysts in the financial markets to understand what's happening beneath the surface that we see reported in the mainstream financial press. Adam and Chris both continue to make fundamentally life-changing contributions to the world of built business resilience and human resilience. When we talk about capital, people often just focus on what's in your bank account. Adam and Chris believe there are eight forms of capital that make up your life, and if you only focus on a few of them, you're probably not going to make it. Definitely, you're going to want to check them out at peakprosperity.com. That's peakprosperity.com. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.